it is very hard for women to capitalize their businesses for so many reasons. I think the biggest reason is just systemic biases that algorithms that banks create, that credit cards create, that venture capitalists create, look back on historic data. Who has successfully done this? And so often, who does that person look like or who do they think that person looks like as a white man? Welcome to the Smart Money Mama Show, where moms get real about money to help you find your financial confidence and live your best life. Now let's talk money, mamas. Hey there, I'm your host, Chelsea Brennan, and mamas, today on the show, we're talking to Kate Anderson, co-founder of iFundWomen, a flexible crowdfunding platform for female business owners. Kate is a leader in generating change and gender equality within the private fundraising space for entrepreneurs. As a co-founder and operations director of iFundWomen, she has driven millions of dollars into the hands of female founders. Today, Kate is going to share the founding story of iFundWomen, the current funding gaps between male-founded and female-founded businesses, and why it's so important to invest in women-owned businesses. As always, stick around until the end of the show to hear my top three takeaways from this conversation with Kate, or you can head over to smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Kate for the complete show notes and to download your free Design Your Passion Project workbook. Are you ready, mamas? Let's get started. Hey, Kate, welcome to the Smart Money Mama show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. It feels like this was like a long time coming. It has been. And I have been following iFundWomen for quite a while. And I love the work that you guys are doing. So tell us a little bit about yourself and about iFundWomen. I'm co-founder of iFundWomen and run operations there. My two co-founders and I, Karen Kahn and Sarah Summers, launched iFundWomen in November of 2016. So we're coming up on four years. And we launched iFundWomen because we really saw that there was a complete white space in the entrepreneurial ecosystem for a platform that provided access to capital for female entrepreneurs, but also coaching and connections that female entrepreneurs needed. The three of us had worked at a startup together. And when we were at that startup, we were trying to raise money and we realized there was so much misinformation out there. Crowdfunding seemed like a great option, but there still wasn't enough information on how to do it successfully. So we kind of as like a Hail Mary decided to launch iFundWomen. You were at a startup before starting iFundWomen. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was that your first job out of school? No, I worked for a company. So I graduated from college in 2009. Right in the middle of it. Oh, totally. Maybe this was fortuitous. I think that there's some real benefits in graduating when there's a really bad economy and that you don't think that you're so fantastic. You have to really work hard to get a job. So graduated in 2009, actually went to live in Sweden with my husband for three months. He was playing hockey there. I tried with all my might to get a paying job, which is very, very hard to do if you are not an EU citizen, and I was not. So made it three months there. Then I moved back home because I could not find a job. And it was very hard for me to be like 22 and not have a job and live with my boyfriend. That was like not a narrative that I was going to go down as a path. And my brother is currently playing hockey in Sweden. So I also know they don't make a ton of money. <laughs> and so it's hard when one of you doesn't have a job. <gasps> oh, that is so funny. Where is he in Sweden? You know what? I have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like he just went two weeks ago and we're having trouble with the translation app mm. for his new team. And it's, it's creating some very funny headlines. I do know so he scored funny. a goal in his first game, but I don't remember the name of the team. <laughs> well, I want to talk about it after. That's really yes, interesting. Absolutely. 
Um, but moved back home. My husband and I, we were dating then, we're moving down to DC. So I moved down to DC and got a job working for a company called Heinz, which was really was and is the premier real estate development company. I didn't know that at the time. I I, I really had no idea, but it was such a great place to work. I worked there for four years. I absolutely loved it. I learned so much working there, worked with like such great people. And it was really great first job because it was so buttoned up. It was so professional. You worked at Goldman Sachs, right? Yeah, I did. So Heinz was very similar to Goldman Sachs in that it was very professional. It was like best in class with what they did. I think that that really helps you to start your professional journey off on the right foot versus I think that I love working at startups, but startups are by nature really casual. And I believe that sometimes if you begin your professional experience at a really casual place, it's harder to go more conservative and more buttoned up. It's easier to kind of loosen yourself up than to get more buttoned up. So anyways, I thought it was a great experience. But from there, then moved to New Jersey. I had my first child. My husband and I left DC and moved in with my parents for a year and found out about Karen Connor, CEO, had a company. It was a video conversation platform for women to connect without like the trolls of YouTube. I cold emailed her, said, I love what you're doing, would love to connect if you need any help. And basically started working there as a Jane of all trades for 20 hours a week, really helping them build out their network of entrepreneurs and YouTubers who are creating video content. And we worked together there for almost like a year and a half. I was on maternity leave with my second child, my son, JR. And it was during that time that we had launched a crowdfunding campaign as a last dish ever to save our business. I came back from maternity leave and we started a completely new company. (laughs) Which is a funny way to come back from maternity leave. That is a funny way to come back to maternity leave. Why did you guys go the crowdfunding route at that point to try to save the business as opposed to like traditional venture capital? Because we tried to get traditional venture capital and it didn't work. It is very hard for women to capitalize their businesses for so many reasons. I think the biggest reason is just systemic biases that algorithms that banks create, that credit cards create, that venture capitalists create, look back on historic data. Who has successfully done this? And so often, who does that person look like or who do they think that person looks like as a white man? Women are starting 1,400 net new businesses every single day in our country, and they don't look like what we know as traditional businesses. Therefore, they have a much harder time getting funding. We had gone out to venture capitalists, had reached out to them, just didn't have success in raising capital in that way. And we wanted to raise capital in a way that like allowed our audience to take advantage of it, to feel like they were part of something that we were doing. We had built a community-focused business. So, you know, then reaching out to the community made a lot of sense. But we saw then there were a lot of biases that a lot of crowdfunding platforms were really focused on, again, on men and not on the needs that women have. And this is just like one small example. I fund women allows people to extend their campaigns as long as they want. It's not a fixed date. Why do we do that? Because we know any number of things get in the way of women running their businesses and get in the way of men running their businesses too. But we've had, you know, people launch a campaign and they have a child that gets sick or they get laid off from their job or there's a natural disaster. And we want to make it easy. We don't want to create barriers for people. There are enough barriers that exist as is. We want to make it as easy as possible for women to run their businesses and to raise capital. Awesome. So what did you take from your guys' own 
crowdfunding experience trying to save that business into developing iFundWomen? We wanted to create a platform that was user-focused and had a great customer experience. When we were running our campaign, could not get somebody on the phone. We wanted to extend our campaign. We couldn't do that. We couldn't get someone on the phone. We know most of the people raising money on iPhone Women. Not all. At one point, we knew everybody that was raising <laughs> money at iPhone Women, and that's a positive thing that we don't know everybody by name. But if you have a question about your campaign, if you need help, if you want someone cheering you on, that's what we are. We're there are so many campaigns that I'm looking at and cheering on from the sidelines, and I'm so excited when they get funded and they hit their goals, and it feels like a success for me. It feels like I helped them do that, even though you know it was them. It was them doing that. I mean, that's one of my favorite things to do, honestly, is to go in and just look at the new campaigns that have been posted and all the amazing businesses that people are starting. It's a very cool community network that you guys have developed there. And so tell me, we mentioned some of the funding gaps between male-owned businesses and female-owned businesses. Can you tell us some of the stats on that? What does that actually look like? I will read out some of the stats so that I'm not, so I make sure that I get them right. But for instance, last year, female-founded companies raised just 2.8% of venture funding in the United States. For female founders of colors, that figure is 0.06%, not even a full percentage point. This is, I think, maybe the most important is regardless of the gender of the founder, 99% of startups will ever raise venture capital. So most companies won't raise venture capital. What we kind of believe is like venture capital is alternative financing since it's not an option for so many people. But then where does that leave our audience is they end up bootstrapping or going into business to fund their idea. And we really don't believe that in the beginning of your business, you should go into debt to fund it because you don't even know if it's going to be viable. You don't want to have a business that fails and most startups fail. That's not, you know, something that the founder did wrong, but you don't want to go into debt and then have a business that's not successful. How do people entice others to support their crowdfunding campaigns? Because you're not getting equity like you would be with, you know, even like an angel investing round. What's the draw to crowdfunding? Sometimes it's rewards is that you're launching something and you offer really cool rewards. So you could be launching a podcast and one of the rewards is a sponsorship. That would feel like enticing to a lot of people. We've had people offer up skills that they're uniquely qualified to do. So for example, using the podcast example, it could be, I will teach you how to start your own podcast. Everything soup to nuts of what you need to successfully run a podcast. So one is rewards, um, is that people are enticed by rewards. Second, it could be that their audience really wants to help them out. And what we know and we believe fully is that people are really generous and they want to help other people out. They just don't always know how to do it. So for example, you could have a woman who has, um, we had a company, Mini Leela, that was creating merino wool clothing for babies and kids. They could have tons of people in their network that want to support them, but they don't have babies. And they don't have kids. And it would feel socially awkward to give someone $100 for their business. Like, oh, how can I help you? Here's $100. As a part of a fundraising campaign, it allows you to tap into all of those people in your network who might not be customers, but who want to support you. And, and when COVID hit, so many of our entrepreneurs were saying like, oh my gosh, how do I ask my network for money? I feel like that's tone deaf. I think that they don't have money. Maybe they've been laid off. And we had this quote come um, that we really loved, or it didn't come, but we utilized to our audience, which was by Brene Brown, and it said, compassionate people ask for what they need. And I think we all know as people who are compassionate that it feels really good when you offer help to someone and they tell you a specific way to help. So, right, so you say to a friend of yours, 
it seems like you guys are really struggling with remote school. How can I help? And they say, you know, it would really help if you could take my kids out one afternoon. And you say, done, I can do that. Who does that feel good for? Not your friend. It feels good for you. It feels good that you've been able to help someone out in a way that they want. And what we've seen through COVID and this whole, you know, last six or seven months is campaigns have been doing so well. They have been doing so well because this is a way people can help. We can't get together in ways that we used to be able to get together now, but you can give someone $10 or $25 or $100 to keep their business going. And that has been really kind of thrilling to see. That is amazing. And you brought up such a good point too about asking for help. And I think we we hear this a lot of how hard it is for women in general to ask for help. So is there any resources that iFund Women has or that you guys have worked with with your founders of getting more comfortable going out and saying, hey, I'm pitching this business and I need some help? How can we better do that? First of all, it comes down to one of the calls that we have in our iFund Women's coaching program is pitch owning. Having a strong pitch makes the biggest difference because let's say we run into each other somewhere and you say like, Kate, how's business? Like, oh, you know, like, it's fine, but things are okay. But if you say, how's business? And immediately I say, you know what? Things have been really good at iFund Women since COVID. We've been able to drive all this money into the hands of female entrepreneurs, but we're actually a little bit stuck in an area. And I feel like you couldn't be able to help me with that. Do you know anybody that's in the market for XYZ? Because we're looking to pair, you know, we're looking to pair experts in this industry with something else. Being able to kind of seamlessly talk about your business in a personal conversation is really critical. And one of the things, and I say this because I'm a mom, I know you are, I know that this podcast is for moms, is think about how easily you are able to talk about what your kids like to eat for dinner or their sleep schedule, right? You're able to say, well, Maggie likes to stay up really late and JR goes to bed at this time. You're able to confidently talk about that. You don't question yourself, right? You don't like, you're not nervous about it. You're able to say it because it's truth and you know you're, you know the most about that. I say to entrepreneurs, the ones that are moms, not everybody is, talk about your business like your kids, where you are able to honestly and confidently talk about what they do. Don't become self-conscious about the fact that you have a business. And that is a common thing. Like, oh, you know what? We launched something. And if you don't mind, would you take a look at it or something to say? Like, we'll really change that to... I'm so excited to tell you about what we're doing with iFundWomen. You have been such a cheerleader, Chelsea, for so long. And I cannot wait to tell you that. Like We have been building iFundWomen for the last four years. And then we had this awesome opportunity this year to start raising money on iFundWomen for our business. And I would love to count you in as an early supporter because I know you'll like be there to support us. Something like that. That makes it feel like you're inviting people to be a part of your journey. And I think we all want to feel like we're able to help someone else out in a way that we feel comfortable with. It would be very different if you emailed me and said, like, would love you to be um, to invest or contribute to Smart Money Mamas. Can you give 10K? Well, no, I can't. But I can give $50. So, you know, like something that you allow people to choose what's a level that they feel comfortable with. How can they... How can their action help a bigger cause? And I think we all want to feel like we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Yeah, that first one that you, the first example that you gave, where you're almost like apologizing for telling them about it, that that doesn't make anyone want to be involved and it puts everybody kind of on edge instead of just owning it. What goes, goes into, I think a lot of people that are listening to this podcast either have businesses or they want to start businesses, but they are not in the startup world, right? They, <laughs> they've never done this before. And so, what goes into a good pitch? Like what things should you be able to talk about confidently? 
So you should start off your pitch with a 15 second elevator pitch, which is just basically exactly what your business is in 15 seconds. And then it should go into like who you are, why you started this, what problem you're solving, how are you solving, and like why are you uniquely qualified to do this? It should be something that you're excited to share. Sometimes the content matters less than the energy level you have giving it. Whenever I help people with their pitch, one of the things they say is like, don't read off a script. Talk to me like I'm your friend and you're telling me about your business and you're super excited about it. And when I hear people that are like, and there are a couple of times where people then read off a script. I'm like, put the script away. Just tell me what it is you do or just tell me why you started this business. Like, where did the idea come from of what you're doing? The biggest thing I think is far and away is like having a level of, an, of excitement talking about your business. That excitement passes on to everybody that if you're so pumped, other people are going to be interested. And if you think about like, um, if you had a really good college professor, you might have been interested in a class that you never would have been interested. Like I had a great professor for mega geology and he was so engaging that something that would have never interested me before was fascinating. And you can have a subject that you love and a teacher that's like not super engaging and therefore you don't like it. Being engaging is contagious and people want to be around someone that feels so excited about their idea, whether or not you get their idea or not. Okay, so we've probably heard a lot of the pieces of the iFund Women pitch already, but can I ask you to give, like, if you were meeting somebody, like, what is the pitch about iFund Women? iFund Women is a startup funding ecosystem for female entrepreneurs, helping them gain access to capital through crowdfunding and grants, coaching through expert coaching and connections all on one unified platform. That's awesome. Okay, so now now we have some more questions for you. Ecosystem is a is not just like this is not just a platform to go post your business idea. There's other stuff going on. So what else has iFund Women added to the platform to make it more of an all-in-one support system for entrepreneurs? We launched iFund Women first just as a crowdfunding platform with coaching that was specific to crowdfunding. And then from there we realized we need coaching that's specific to all stages of your business. We have plenty of people on iFund Women that are never going to crowdfund, that, that just want expert coaching. So they're coming to us to get coaching on scaling their team, launching their socials, honing their pitch, um, marketing their business, building out their website, all of these different aspects. In addition to kind of all those coaching opportunities, we've always had a Slack community where all of our entrepreneurs are connecting, sharing what works, we have amazing community managers on iPhone Women's team managing them because if, if anybody's ever managed a community, it's really hard. It's hard for it to not get kind of unruly and have it be a place where people are just promoting themselves and not offering advice or guidance. And so that's we've really tried to make it a place where people get actionable information and connect with like-minded people like, oh, you guys are both in Connecticut. You should meet up. Or you guys are both in podcasting. You should meet up. That's fantastic. You now run operations there. How did your role develop? I think like that early stage, we're going to start this business to having employees, having coaches, having a whole team. How did you get to to where you are now where you're, you've chosen to take over operations? My role kind of has just naturally filled that gap. So we have three co-founders, Karen, who is our CEO. So her job is really setting the idea stages for the business and capitalizing our business. Sarah, who has run kind of all of our creative and now manages all of our brand. And then I've managed like always kind of the division has been that I'm responsible for the operations. And I think part of that comes from that previous experience I talked about at Heinz of being able to create 
processes that make us more efficient in what we do. Operations is really a catch-all. Like there's not one operations job at one company that's going to be the same at other companies. And it's kind of been this like moment that I've had personally where you're trying to say, okay, what, how do I learn more about operations? It's very hard to do. It's a job that I think a lot of people, you just learn on the job of what the needs are for your existing company. So I see my needs of are like handling HR at our company, making sure all of the operational parts of running a business gets run because as your business scales, that's a big job. There's a lot of stuff that's encompassed in that and making sure like making sure the like trains are running smoothly. And it's a job I think that a lot of people don't always see what is um, a part of it because it doesn't always tie to revenue and it doesn't tie to kind of super exciting or sexy things, but it makes sure that like people have what they need and are set up for success as much as possible. What do you envision the next few years looking like in iFundWomen and in your own career goals? At iFundWomen, we've really kind of, we've turned a dial this past year and not just in COVID, it really launched almost a year ago where we've partnered with big brands like Adidas and Visa and Unilever and P&G to launch these grant programs that big businesses realize that they need to be supporting that entrepreneurial ecosystem. They want to be supporting the entrepreneurial ecosystem. It's a great funnel for them. And it's a great way for them to help out female entrepreneurs. So they've come to iFundWomen and said, we love what you're doing. We want to offer coaching, mentorship. We want to offer grants. We want to offer events for your entrepreneurs. I think that that will grow even more. Our dream for iPhone Women is really to be the go-to destination when someone starts a business. People on this podcast are listening. They have an idea and they say, okay, I'm going to iPhone Women. That's where I'm going to solve my idea is and I'm going to take actionable steps. One of the best pieces of feedback I got from an entrepreneur was, She said, I've been on a lot of different entrepreneurial platforms and you guys are the only one that actually provides actionable advice, not just like, this is so fun to be like a female entrepreneur or I love this. It's it's actually really like giving you guidance on what you need to do to run your business. I know that there's people listening who are having some imposter syndrome and are like, okay, but I'm not starting some big tech business. What type of businesses are launching on iFundWomen? Every type of business. It's really, it really is. Like people ask us that all the time. And we intended to always be topic agnostic. We did not want to be just a product-based business because what we know is service-based businesses have a really hard time capitalizing. So we have nail salons on iPhone Women. We also have people creating really cool nail polishes. We have people creating services like as a nails, which is like a dry bar, but for nails. We have coffee shops. We have co-working spaces. We have people having daycare facilities. We have scientists, we have apps, we have like every single type of business, and all stages of businesses, all stages of startups. But it is no idea is too small. And plenty of people come to us and say, like, I have an idea. And we say, Okay, great, this is what you need to do next. Like maybe it's not raising money right off the bat, but it's actually to start communicating about your idea. Find out if people are interested in your idea. That's always the biggest like if someone were to say, I have an idea, what should I do next? start telling people about it. I think a big mistake people make is being precious about an idea. And by precious, I mean like not wanting to share it with anybody. As a result of that, you'll never understand like, do people like this or not? And in my time at iFundWomen, I have spoken to thousands of female entrepreneurs, so I've really seen it all. But I've had plenty of people I've talked to have said like, I'm doing this thing and no one else has done it before. I'm like, well, 
that's not true. <laughs> you know, and right off the bat, I can think of examples that are big examples. And I don't blame the entrepreneur for that. I think sometimes we are only in our own head and we're not sharing ideas with other people. If you feel nervous, and here's advice for people, if you feel nervous to share the idea with people in your network, get online. There's a Facebook group for everything you could want to do. Get online and send out a survey to people. Say, this is what I'm thinking about doing. An example I had is someone once said, I'm going to create an all-natural diaper line. No one's done this before. I mean, well, <laughs> people have done this before. There's many of them. Many. But get online and say, okay, join a group and have like a survey that's five questions. And maybe you link something to it. You know, you'll be entered to win a $25 Amazon gift card. Ask people's opinions. Also ask their email address because that's going to be a great way if they want to opt in to follow up with them about further information. You might say, okay, I have this great idea. Would you buy this? No. If 10 people take the survey and they all say no, that's data. That helps drive decisions. Then maybe you need more people. If 100 people take the survey and 90 people say, no, I would not buy this, then maybe that's telling you, you might think this is a great idea, but it's not a great idea for other people. So let's pivot it. Let's find something else that's a great idea. Getting out there, sharing your idea with other people, talking to them will really, really help. And it might be hard. It might be hard if people poke holes in your idea and say, I don't think that makes sense or who would want that. And But it will help you to create an idea that the most amount of people will want, or perhaps maybe not the most amount of people, but your core audience will want. We were actually just having this conversation with my husband a couple of months ago. So he's developing a website that they're turning into an app. And at first, he was really nervous to ask for advice about it because he was like, well, I don't want someone to steal it. And I was like, well, then you're never going to get any help because... And I get that. And especially like with TV shows and all these things of people like losing out on the million dollar idea, we, we get kind of secretive, but that doesn't help us actually get the support and marketing information that we need. No, and you're exactly right, Chelsea. And so many of our entrepreneurs say, I don't want to tell you about this idea. What if someone takes this idea? And our kind of boilerplate response is, what if somebody does take the idea and does it and it's not you, not because they heard of it from you. It's because you didn't move fast enough as a result. There are a few ideas out there that are like no one's ever done before, right? Likely in this world that we live in and of millions and millions and millions of billion people, probably about a dozen different people are working on the same idea that you are. We also know like there are a ton of businesses out there. So it is not just you and me, Chelsea, and like we are the only ones competing for something. There's a lot of space for different audiences. But you don't want to let fear hold you back. And like, you know, what if someone takes this? What if they do? And you will kick yourself all of the time for not moving forward on it. And we've seen before, like companies can launch at the same time and one company can be far and away better. And they have the same exact idea and one person just executed on it better. And so often like, you know, an idea is just an idea. It's the execution of it that really matters. And you brought up a good thing on the flip side, too, which is that if a business exists that's similar, it doesn't mean another one can exist. There are hundreds of financial education websites and platforms out there, but we all serve slightly different audiences. And there's just so many people that you just have to take action and find your audience, which I do like about the pre-questions, too, about taking the surveys, reaching out to your network, is finding out how do I talk about this in a way that gets people to the, yes, I would buy this. Because sometimes, I'm sure you've seen this, and I've seen it from my old career of like you pitch a business a certain way and everybody says no and you change a couple of words and then everybody's on board, right? It's like just the language that we use sometimes. Yeah, and I think it makes a big difference. And I think that you can have one company that just 
their CEO has a different vibe. And and that vibe is the same as you. You kind of feel like, oh, I like, well, I like how Chelsea talks about money. She reminds me of myself. Or it feels like her advice is good. Your advice might be the same as somebody else, like as Jim Cramer on Mad Money, but he's yelling at people. <laughs> Unlikely. <and> that, <laughs> but, but, you know, but it, it's like people respond to a certain perspective. And I think in so many aspects of our lives and the decisions we make, you can buy a car from any car dealer, but you tend to go to someone like, oh, I like their vibe, or I feel like I can trust them or whatever it is, or maybe you don't care about that. But I think that with companies, so much of it comes down to how are you going to be different than other, you know, how's your organic diaper company going to be different than other ones? And maybe that alone will be able to get customers for you. I want to talk about investing in women-owned businesses more generally and about your own story. But I have one more question about iPhone Women, which is, how do you guys make money? So a couple different ways. We take a percentage fee on any contribution someone makes to iFund Women. So you back a campaign on iFund Women. iFund Women gets a, a small percentage of that. The vast majority goes to the entrepreneur. We have a coaching program that we charge a monthly fee for. It's $199 a month or $1,500 for the year. We have a video production studio where we help female entrepreneurs film videos. And then we make money through grants. We're partnering with these huge companies, like I said, Visa, Adidas, to name a few, and they are paying us money to basically broker these grants to female entrepreneurs. So we've got like a lot of different revenue streams, which helps. I think having just one revenue stream can make it scary if some of that revenue dries up. Absolutely. Multiple streams of income are so smart. Now, before we dive into the importance of investing in women-owned businesses, we're going to take a quick break to hear about our partners who help make the Smart Money Mama show possible. Are you ready for the money event of the year? Our free Mama's Talk Money Summit featuring over 40 of the best women in personal finance and business is happening October 12th through the 16th. We're going all out this year. We'll have live Q&A with speakers, thousands of dollars in giveaways, worksheets to help you take action on everything you learn, and so much more. We're going to be talking about everything from mindset and budgeting to finding passion-driven work and building generational wealth. Oh, and did I mention it's completely free? Grab your ticket now at mamastalkmoney.com and come talk money with us. So we talked early on in the episode, Kate, about the funding gap, right? The gender funding gap. So why is it important to invest in women-owned businesses outside of the obvious fairness side? What are the benefits of investing in women-owned businesses? First of all, investing in women-owned businesses, I believe, is a smart investment decision. Businesses founded by women deliver two times higher revenue per dollar invested than those founded by men, making them better investments. That's kind of like the, the analytical reasons. I think what I see at my job is women are solving problems that other people don't see. And when we have more diversity in who's solving problems, we have more diverse problems that are solved. We had a woman, Silaja, who created a company creating diverse books that represented Southeast Asian culture in America. There were children's books and they're phenomenal books, right? So many of our books just talk about certain cultures or, or, or they're other, right? That's like, this is an other culture. But these are just stories about American kids who are of Southeast Asian descent or their family members are. And the books are a lovely portrayal of just different cultures and what different people do. So she's solving a problem that I think other people wouldn't have seen. We have so many different examples of that. We have women creating one campaign I love is called Black People Will Swim. That's all about getting Black people to swim more because that is actually like a big issue in our country. So it's trying to encourage them to 
do something or to have the resources to move forward with something. We have so many amazing campaigns and I think it's both a great investment, but I think it's important to help other businesses get started because the ideas that women-led businesses, women are creating are solving really important problems for society that people aren't necessarily noticing. I have a story, I think I've told before on this podcast, where when I was at Goldman, so Goldman has their 10,000 women program, which is funding 10,000 women-owned businesses globally. And when I was at that company, they were doing a presentation about why they developed it this way. And what they had found was that when they funded male-owned businesses in third world countries, it made that family very rich. (laughs) When they invested in women-owned businesses, they hired their neighbors, they sent their neighbors' kids to schools. It changed the whole community aspect. And those businesses tended to be more profitable longer term. And so they chose to focus on really turning around communities by investing in women-owned businesses. And I always keep that in my mind of the ways that women might just think about money and profit and business growth a little bit differently that might have a greater impact over time. Yeah. And I think I think that those facts are really important. It, women spend money in their communities more than men do. And what I also am a firm believer in is so often, historically, all of the money has gone to male-owned businesses. And why don't we just change it? Let's see what it's like if women get all the money. Like, how would that be different, right? And, and we haven't really had the opportunity to see that. And I think that women deserve a fair shot. And, and the biggest issues with funding is that is at the earliest stages is women have a harder time getting that like initial 20K of seed investment they need to get started. If more women had access to that, then more of these businesses would end up surviving. But so many women really are stifled by never being able to hire another employee, never making it past the $100,000 revenue mark, the $1 million revenue mark. And the people we really see on the top are just men. And then they're the ones making decisions about what corporate America should look like and what a company, how a company should be run. And why not give women a fair shake? And Sarah Blakely, I love her. I think she does great things. But like, I would love to have another example of like a successful female-led business that's not just Sarah Blakely. Like, let's have a lot more companies that are like that. I feel like there's so many entrepreneurial things and she's the sole example. And I'm sure she would say the same thing. Like, let's have more Sarah Blakely's out there. 100%. Your comment also reminded me of the Ruth Bader Ginsburg, rest in peace, quote about there'll be enough women on the court when there are nine. Yeah, but I think (laughs) it's so true. Like, and it's something I kind of say all of the time to anybody that will listen is, the people who have made the decisions of what our country look like are white men. And why not give someone else a fair shot? Because that's not what our country looks like. It's not all of the people in our country. We don't have enough women in positions of power making those decisions. So people make decisions for a world that looks like what they want and what they need. And I think we're seeing this right now with COVID and the huge impact it's having on, on working mothers. And I know, you know, that's not every situation, but, but it is destroying them. I think that it's time for like a great upheaval of who are the people making the decisions of what our country looks like and how we're supporting the people in our country. COVID has been such a impossible situation for working moms. And it's been sad to even see in our community how many women have said, I'm going part time or I'm leaving because I can't, I can't do virtual school and we're from home at the same time. And and it is in households with when we still have the gender pay gap and mom lakes less. Well, if someone's got a step down from their job. It makes it logically it all flows, but we need, we need to switch it up. Like it's been long enough. Yeah. And I think like speaking about the gender pay gap, 
if women are making 72 cents on the dollar or 77 cents, whatever, it's in the 70s, it is harder for them to get loans for their businesses. Like that gender pay gap, it's harder for them to get mortgages. It's harder for them to do a lot of things. That's the systemic sexism and not to speak about systemic racism in our financial systems. And I think that it's time for them to really be like uprooted to reflect what our country looks like and who are the people that are stakeholders. And that's another thing too about all the women businesses that are being started. I think we use that stat a lot because it's amazing to see how many daily women-owned businesses are are starting and uh, women of color-owned businesses. But I think it's also a sign of the corporate America is just not serving us anymore. And if we want to earn more money, if we want to have more control over our culture, then we're just going to go leave and start our own businesses, right? Which can be a positive thing. And hopefully it drives a lot of change. But some of it is just that our system does not does not serve working moms in particular. Yeah, not at all. And I think it's that it, it's so unfortunate because the years of childcare needs being really intensive are pretty short. They are really pretty short. But it's at these really important precipices in people's like career that if you drop out, then it's at a moment where like both things feel like, okay, well, if my career is going to keep going, it's going to have a huge trajectory. And therefore, I'm not going to be there with my kids. But there's a way to make it work. And there's a way to survive. You just need employers that are going to understand that you might not be able to be there all of the time. But I am also a firm believer that if you are understanding for people's situations, they will show up with loyalty to you to the best of their ability. You might not have a thought on this, but <laughs> I have to comment. So we talk about businesses figuring out how to support when you're at that point, because it is like your peak childbearing age is just this absolutely important moment in your career. And so we see some big temp companies and big funded companies now saying like, okay, we'll pay for like egg freezing and IVF so that you can just delay motherhood. I don't know what your thoughts on that. This drives me nuts. <laughs> Of like, let's do an expensive invasive procedure instead of us figuring out as a company how to get you through this career growth with maternity leave. It's hard. And I think, I mean, frankly, I think to step back, and I think you can probably relate to this, is I think the conversation needs to be parents, men and women in their 30s and 40s are having kids. You should not be surprised. And I remember at my at Heinz where I worked, I was telling a woman that I worked with, I said, I'm going to tell our boss that I'm pregnant and I'm nervous. And she was like, don't be nervous. He would be an idiot not to think that you are the age that you are and you're not going to have kids. It shouldn't be surprising. And he was so, he was so happy. And it was like such a, a joyous thing. But she said, you have to know that if you're hiring people of a certain age, they're going to have kids. That should not be a surprise. That should be like an encouraged thing. And creating ways to make it easier for them and knowing that it is a short game. Like if you are super generous with maternity leave and super generous in our country, let's say would be like six months. So I've had three kids. That's 18 months. That is not that much time off from work. It really is not. It is 18 months of like then letting, giving people flexibility to come back to work and I don't know, just not lose where they're going to stay. And I think we live in a culture where People are quick to switch jobs because perhaps they're looking for too much from their jobs. Maybe a larger question is, what are our jobs doing and what should the government do? And we've unfortunately in the U.S., I think, had this opportunity like where for a while women have stayed home. So then that always seems to exist as an option. But we all know like that's very hard to do. Like that's a hard situation to have one person stay at home. 
So what are other ways that we can like make sure people stay in the workforce? And, you know, going back to Sweden, in Sweden, parents got diapers, full year of diapers their first year. They got a year off of work and then all kids were in universal preschool. So there was no idea of like, well, our family needs to find a nanny and there's not a nanny that's good. Everybody did something. And I think that it feels easier if everyone in the same way, like, you know, all kids go to school at a certain age. If our our country actually cared about that, about what that looked like, it would be beneficial for everybody because you would have a workforce that was really committed to staying there because they felt like their kids were being taken care of in a way that was was meaningful to them. Yeah, we bring up Sweden as always like the the go-to example for these these situations in general, but that year also requires that dad takes a certain amount of time off. And we go back to thinking about parents, not just mom being the only one who has to take care of the kids. I've actually read a lot about that, about how if we just enacted some kind of mandatory maternity and paternity leave, we'd actually close a lot of those gender gaps because companies couldn't just look at it as, well, I'm hiring women of a certain age, it's I'm hiring people of a certain age, and they're likely to have kids. That's a great point. So Kate, what financial goals are you working on right now? Well, this is funny, because after we spoke, I said to my husband, I was like, we need to get our finances in order. We need to set... We need to have like goals that we're both aligned with. We're both pretty similarly minded. And I mean, he's so frugal. I'm less frugal, but we're not like big spenders on things. But I said, what we need to do is like meet with a financial planner, which we did and project out like, what are the next five years of our life? And what are the goals we're mapping to? Because I feel like so many people, it's like, I want to make more money, but why? For what? And what is more money? You know, what is the level of what is more money and what will you do with that? So we did a good exercise of going through like, and I, I believe in manifesting. So like, all I want is to buy a vacation house in the Berkshires. If anyone's selling a house, like, let me know. <laughs> the Berkshires are so beautiful. I love it there. And my best friend from growing up has a house there. It's so nice. But that's a goal of mine. Why is it a goal? Because I really like to spend time outside with the kids. I would want to run it as an Airbnb too. Like I love kind of having a place to go to do that. But then that means like we need to make sacrifices in other ways or do things towards that goal. And and I think actually sitting down and meeting with someone and figuring out like where we have room to spend, where we have room to save, how we're investing is really felt like to me, like we were making a decision to move forward on a successful path for ourselves for like the next five years. That's such a good exercise to go through and have a sense of where you want your money to go. Also, because we so often think we need so much money, right? Like we need way, we need to make way more money. And it's like, we have to write down exactly how much our dreams cost and then figure out how to get there. Otherwise, it never feels like enough. We actually have a session at the Mama's Talk Money Summit next week called What is Enough? And talking about how to decide your different levels of I'm happy here so that you don't go get a promotion or switch jobs in chasing money that you end up less happy than you were before. So you all got to pay attention to all of that stuff. So, No, I think it's so important. And I think for everybody, it's like, what does success look like for you? Because I believe, you know, not everybody, but there is always a job that's going to pay more money. You can always find that. But what is the sacrifice to it? And I know this, like working at a startup for the last four years, you don't make a lot of money at a startup. What I do have is I have flexibility to do things. I have autonomy to drop my kids off at school and pick my kids up from school on days that I can do that. There's more flexibility built into that. It might mean that some nights, like most nights, I'm working on the computer at eight o'clock at night or nine o'clock. But I'm there for my kids. I don't feel like I'm not there all of the time. And I grew up with a stay-at-home mom. Like that was that was what I knew. And I didn't want to not be there for my kids. I didn't want to be that they were gone for me all day. I wanted to have a sense of what they were doing in school and who their friends were and how they were spending time and 
be able to have a pulse on that. And my husband can't really do that that much because of his job. And I thought, well, for our household, like we don't want to have two people that can't do that. There are sacrifices that you make. I think everybody has to figure out like what's most important to them. I think it's, you know, time and money. If you have more money, how are you going to spend your time? Vice versa. If you have more time, what would you do? And I think being really clear on that. So you're exactly right. So you don't switch jobs to say, oh, well, I'm making $50,000 more, but I'm also expected to work all day, every day. I'm way more stressed. I'm not having fun. And I thought that, I don't know what it was like for you at Goldman, but I know a lot of people that worked making a ton of money at places like that. And they made a ton of money and they had no time to spend the money. So what's the point of making like two or $300,000 a year if you can't like go out and meet a friend for a drink? I actually just talked about this on another podcast I was on that those first few years at Goldman, so I ended up at Bain in Boston, but those first few years at Goldman, we spent almost no money, but mostly because I was only at work. I got to work at six o'clock in the morning. I didn't leave until 10 o'clock at night, six days a week. I had all my meals there. They feed you. And it was like, well, I'll just save all this money. Which is great, which is awesome. But it's also saying, you know, like, is that sustainable for the long term? Of course not. Yeah. It's like, can you do that as a married person or as a parent? And no, like, that's not a lifestyle that and some people can or they they're comfortable with it. But it was not it wasn't a good fit for us. Cool. So what are you teaching? Your kids are six, four and two boys or girls. I have two girls. Maggie is six. Audrey's two. And then JR is our son. He's four. What are you thinking about teaching them about entrepreneurship and money? And I have to think of the name of this, but my husband was saying NPR Smart Money. There's a good kids podcast that's all about money, about them having an entrepreneurial idea. But I grew up in a household where we always were expected to work. If we, my parents paid for all of the necessities and we had like everything taken care of in many ways, but anything we wanted to do for fun, we had to work. So like I always had odd jobs and different things that I would do to make money. And I want my kids to do the same thing, to understand that like money is something that you have to work for. Then from there, you get to do things that you want to do. And it's how I've explained to kids about me working or Mark working, my husband, is we both work so that we have money to provide for our family. And sometimes we can't do other things that you want us to be there for because we're working. But that also means like we could go on a vacation that's really fun or You get to do, you know, this class that you really like to do. Like there are pluses and minuses of everything. So it's important for me and my husband to teach our kids, like the importance of working for money, of having jobs that are not super glamorous. My husband grew up in Nebraska and his first job was a corn husker when he was eight. I mean, this is like definitely child labor laws that like he would be woken up at six in the morning. He was eight go ride a school bus to the cornfield and like detassel the corn and all like all kids from Nebraska do that. And they were there all day and they got paid to do that, which is really just summer camp in reverse, right? Why don't they do that in New England? Or like, your kids are gone all day, you don't have to pay for it. And they make like $10 an hour for doing that. $10 an hour? Not $10, like $10 a day. It was some like atrocious dollar amount. Yes, that definitely feels like it fits in child labor laws. There is a person, I don't actually remember their name, but they were just on the Boss Mom podcast with Dana Malstoff, where the dad, instead of telling stories to his kids at bedtime, they like created a fake chocolate factory business. Every night he'd come in and they'd have a different issue, like the price of cocoa beans went up. What are we going to do? And so they'd sit and like have little problem solving sessions. And I always like wish I was a parent like that. (laughs) So they had this like long term thing. And recently at the beginning of COVID, he got stuck in Europe 
And so they like wrote a book together about their business and about how other families can do this. And now I'm like, this is fascinating. How can I build this into my life with my children? (laughs) But I think my daughter's big like goal, she's six. And her first grade teacher said, what's your goal for the year? And she said, to earn $50 so I can buy a guinea pig. I've never agreed that she can get it when she has $50, but it also felt like it's not worth to say she can't. I mean, if she gets, if she earns $50, I guess we're getting a guinea pig. It feels like she's working for it, but. Has she calculated the ongoing cost of the guinea pig? Well, and like, I'm like, where's a guinea pig going to be? I don't want that. But I, I, you know, I like the idea of like teaching kids that if you want something, you have to set a goal and, and saving for something. I think that's an important thing. And I think that even more important than when we were growing up, our kids will need to know the importance of saving things because we know we can buy whatever we want whenever we want it. We have no, besides COVID happening in our lifetime, we've had no supply issues. It's like COVID and Beanie Babies were the only thing we couldn't buy at the moment that we wanted them. Assuming you had money, but the actual supply of the physical yeah, but thing. the actual supply. And I think that like teaching kids that just because you want something now doesn't mean you can get it now. I think we're going to have to do a lot of working with kids to understand that because in every other aspect of their life, they want to watch a show. Well, guess what? Any show you want to watch, you can watch it anytime. You want this toy? Well, like it could come tomorrow if you want it. And I think that teaching them to delayed gratification, having to work for something, having to understand, okay, well, some days something could be on sale or not. I think those are like great learning lessons for kids to understand. Well, when they don't have any of those types of restrictions, right, their ability to do creative problem solving goes away too, right? Because they can just get what they want in the moment. One of my favorite money stories with kids was actually in Boston. My colleague of mine, her older son was old enough to get allowance, but her younger son wasn't yet. And so she was like, when you turn this age, you can get allowance. But he was kind of money obsessed. He wanted money. They lived across the street, very expensive neighborhood in Boston, but across the street was the grocery store. And he saw people returning cans one day. And <laughs> he said, what is that? To the nanny. And then he was like, oh, they, there's like a coin deposit. You get five cents back for every coin you put in. So this little boy goes back home and he starts stacking all the cans from the house. And then he goes down to the doorman and says, do you have any cans? And the guy goes, yeah, I have a lot of cans. Why? The doorman started giving him big garbage bags full of cans. (laughs) And my colleague got home from work today and her whole entryway was full of cans. And he's like, I'm going to bring them across to return cans. But that's And she was like, I can't decide if I'm proud or mortified. No, I think it's proud. (laughs) And I think like... For kids to find out there's different ways to make money. And money for them a lot of times is like, so hard to understand. What do you do for a job? Well, I just sit in front of a computer and then I get paid for doing that. I think that it's important for them to see like the work that goes into something. But you have to be deliberate in all of those things. And I grew up in a household where it was very clear like my parents had money. That was their money that they worked for. And that there were benefits for us from that. No doubt about that. And if there was things we wanted to do, like go on a trip with our friends or go to the movies or go out to dinner, like our money had to pay for that. They would never contribute anything to that. I liked that philosophy. It was very different than a lot of my friends who they wanted to go to the movie and their parents would give them 20 bucks or something like that. And I think it it helped you to understand, like if I wanted to go shopping, I bought whatever I wanted to wear, whatever stupid outfit I thought looked cool with my own money. But my, you know, my parents wouldn't have bought, they wouldn't have taken me to Mandy to buy like the dumbest looking thing that a... 12 year old could think of, but I had my own money to do that. And I think that that teaches kids like, you know, this is these are your dollars, you can spend them how you want. 
Any last pieces of advice, Kate, for women who are starting or trying to scale their own businesses? I think really my biggest piece of advice is talk to as many people as possible. Talk to people who have started businesses as well. And if you need help finding them, go on iFund Women. There are a lot of businesses out there. But connect with other people. I think it especially helps to hear from women who have started businesses because if everyone in your network works in corporate America, then they might say like, don't do that. Don't leave your job. It's X, Y, Z. But is is hear out from a lot of people and not just like your mom or your college roommate or, or your best friend. Hear from people that have ideas that push you to do better. All conflict, I think, can be like a positive thing. I heard a quote the other day that said, no one became a, a great sailor with calm water, right? That you learn from friction and from things that people say that might make you feel uncomfortable is going to help you ultimately build a better company. Then my second point, and I think this is completely relevant for this podcast, is don't quit your day job until your side hustle or your entrepreneurial dream is like actually making money. I think that's a huge mistake that someone says like, I'm going to leave this and then I'll start this other thing. Like, let's say you're making $75,000 a year. Well, you're going to start making like negative money a year. (laughs) And unless you know, and unless you've modeled out that this is like a successful idea, that's not the path to take. Okay, Kate, before we let you go, you have to try on our Smart Money Mama's sorting hat. So the sorting hat is our version of the hot seat where the magical hat reveals something about you. Are you ready? Yes. Things like this make me always very uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Tell us your favorite funny mom life story. Oh, favorite funny mom life story. I don't know. Every day is kind of funny. This is, I guess, kind of funny. Like my kids see me naked all the time. The time and the other day, my daughter they said something like, "I want to have fake boobs just like mommy." And I don't. <laughs> I nurse three kids. I have breasts that are that look like I've nursed three kids. But you know, kids say something. You're like, "Where did you even learn any of that language? Like that's so atrocious." One of the times we're grateful for COVID, where they're not at least saying it in public. Oh my gosh, yeah. Well, and then actually, this is a funny thing that my daughter's teacher called me to just do like a check-in and she said okay I have to ask a question like I hope it's not uncomfortable and I was like no she was like about home life and I was like shit what could it be (laughs) what happened (laughs) and she was like your Maggie told me that you and your husband are divorced and I just wanted to like ask about that I was like no not divorced and she was like she said you're divorced and you have two separate Christmases so she gets like two separate gifts and I was like I think she just wants two separate Christmases of getting like two (laughs) groups of gifts but I was like not divorced they do such funny things. That is so funny with the, I want fake boobs. Like, God, I was like, <laughs> I want them. But I was like, that's not what's happening here. Oh, my God. Hilarious. Kate, where can people follow up with you and hear more about iFund Women? Anybody feel free to email me all the time. I can't say that I'll email back quickly, but I always do email back at some point. But I'm Kate at iFundWomen.com. You can follow iFund Women at iFund Women on all social channels. That's really where you'll get like most of the information about what we're doing at iFund Women. Awesome. Well, Kate, thank you so much for joining us and telling us about entrepreneurship for women. We hope we talk to you again soon. Yeah, this is so fun. Thank you for having me. Mamas, I am so in awe of what Kate and her co-founders have built with iFundWomen. Not only a place to go raise money, but also an invaluable resource for education and networking for female entrepreneurs. It's incredible. I seriously recommend going over to their website and just scrolling through the businesses currently running campaigns. So many amazing women doing fantastic things. As always, I've wrapped up my three favorite takeaways from this chat with Kate that you can take into your own investing and financial life. First, women-owned businesses are simply 
a good investment. Kate shared some enlightening data that female-founded businesses generate $2 in revenue for every $1 invested, a better return than the average male-owned business investments. And that's not the only piece of research that implies women-owned businesses are a good financial choice. Research by Quantopian found that women-led companies have tended to outperform companies led by only men, generating up to three times the returns of their male-led counterparts. Isn't that badass? Investing in women-owned businesses isn't just about equality. It's actually a wise money decision. How much money as an economy and as communities are we leaving on the table by letting the funding gap between male and female businesses continue the way it is? A lot especially considering how much more money stays in local communities when women-led businesses thrive. Find ways to support women-run businesses locally, consider backing a campaign on iFundWomen, and if you're an entrepreneur looking for funding, don't let biases get you down. Pitch with the passion we know you have for your idea. There is support out there and you'll find it. Which actually brings us to my second takeaway. Get clear on your pitch. If you're an entrepreneur, a side hustler, a business owner, no one is going to be more excited about your business than you are. You have to show others that passion and present what you do in a way that makes people want to get involved. Practice that elevator pitch. Clarify where you need help. As the ever-incredible Brene Brown says, don't shrink, don't puff up. Listening to Kate talk about the importance of pitches reminded me of all Meredith Feynman's advice about bragging better in episode 41. Go give that episode a listen and then draft your pitch. And if you want to practice, record yourself giving your pitch and tag us on Facebook or Instagram with it at Smart Money Mamas. You can use us as an excuse for sharing what you do with your network. And I'd be happy to watch, cheer you on and provide any feedback that I have. Finally, Network, 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 and ask for help. This is a crucial piece of advice from Kate for everyone, not just business owners. We never know which people we meet will support us, will open doors, create great friendships and relationships where you can vent or trade ideas. Keep an eye out for people with interesting backgrounds or shared connections. Don't be afraid to reach out and schedule a coffee or a Zoom date. Send a few emails. Networking can feel kind of awkward especially when you're honest about the areas where you're struggling and need help or advice. But doing that work is an investment in yourself. It's making the journey less lonely and developing more people who are in your corner when you need them. Don't shy away. You're amazing and you've got this. Mamas, I want to thank Kate again for coming on the show and sharing the story of iFundWomen. You can find links to visit the site and download your free Design Your Passion Project workbook in the show notes at smartmoneymamas.com forward slash Kate. Keep talking money, mamas. I'll see you next time. <laughs>